Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Stuart Wexler, author of America's Secret Jihad, The Hidden History of Religious Terrorism in the United States. Uh, and we are, we're not only discussing the book, but we're discussing the Christian identity movement. So uh, if you're a fan of the show and you've been listening, uh, kind of the first encounter with Christian identity that we've kind of had on the podcast is with our good friend, Matt Taylor, discussing sort of uh, the Christian identity movement's increasing influence on QAnon and sort of in Q spaces. And that got me thinking, right? So, you know, how to cover the Christian identity movement. Um, as most of you know, our good friend uh, J.M. Berger has written a lot about uh, British Israelism and sort of the theological underpinnings of the Christian identity movement. And th that was kind of neat, but at the same time, it's like, okay, so we have something in the 20th, in the beginning of the, you know, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, but really, like, I want to kind of structure a show around its influence, around its kind of how it sort of works itself into the fabric of the broader white supremacist, white power, and white nationalist movement. Because if you go through history books, and if you even if you go through our catalog of shows from the Turner Diaries, from uh, Kathleen Ballou's, um, the her book, and then a bunch of other sort of texts and ideas that we've examined in the show, Christian identity seems to be on the, on the kind of the fringes and the margins. So today, what we're going to do is really pick that apart and really examine the history and the influence of the Christian identity movement here in the United States. So with that, please welcome Stuart Wexler. How's it going? It's going well, Cena. How's it going with you? And, and thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. So um, when I started uh, doing research for this show, of course, I read your book. It's very excellent. But at the same time, I couldn't find a lot of things on YouTube. So like usually like speeches or lectures. And, and I really struggled to find stuff on Wikipedia. It was almost, it, it was this weird deficit of information. You kind of had to, you know, go through other histories to find out about Christian identity. So I want to just ask this fundamental question. Uh, why study Christ the Christian identity movement? W what did you as a researcher uh, find kind of fascinating about the movement and, and worthwhile to kind of dig into? So what, what happened was I actually came in to Christian identity somewhat through the back door. If I heard about it, you know, if you asked me in the year like 2000, Maybe I had some sort of vague understanding of it from hearing about it somewhere, but I wouldn't have been at all aware of it, its influence or anything like that. But um, a colleague of mine and I, uh, my co-author on a number of books, Larry Hancock, we initially started looking into, we were going to look into the Robert Kennedy assassination. And just as a side note, I'm going to have probably a podcast myself called Cold History with a colleague, Greg Coyman, and we're going to go into it. But uh, that mound up, we started looking at a couple of people who were associated, who, who someone accused of being involved in the Robert Kennedy assassination. A uh, guy named Tommy Terrence, who's still alive and uh, 
woman named Kathy Ainsworth. And we, and we, we concluded that they had, we didn't think they had anything to do with, with Robert Kennedy's assassination. But there were some very intriguing, and we'll probably get into a little bit more depth on this later, connections to potential peripheral, possibly, um, I don't know, adjacent, whatever you want to call it, to the, to the Martin Luther King assassination. And Tommy Terrence in particular became a very interesting figure in that. We could talk about that later. And so we started exploring King's assassination and those two individuals, Kathy Ainsworth, who if people, she's not probably on the top of many people's, you know, well-known white supremacist list, but she's actually a, a martyr in the cause. And I could explain that a little bit later. And Tommy Terrence, who at one time was the chief terrorist for the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi, which we'll probably talk a bit about, which was at one time in the 60s, the most violent Ku Klux Klan group you could find. And through those two and through the King assassination, what what kept on coming up was that there was this ideological umbrella network. It was almost like a proto-social network of individuals who were very involved with white supremacist movements and organizations. And people knew who they were, who had any kind of study of right-wing extremism, especially in late 50s, but especially the 60s. But what nobody really did was, except in some obscure places, was, was exp- explore them outside of this just conventional framework of what you might call neo-Confederate, counter-revolutionary, white supremacy that everybody thinks about when they think about the Ku Klux Klan, especially in the 1960s. And what we found out is these folks had a different dimension to them. And I'm not just talking about Ainsworth and Terrence, although it applies to them, but to several other people we're going to talk about, J.B. Stoner, Wesley Swift, William Potter Gale. And these individuals took high-level positions of influence, if not leadership, outright running some of the most well-known and violent white supremacist groups in the 60s that everybody sees. And because even, I I don't even want to dismiss it as surface level, without question, there was a deep component of just plain old-fashioned conventional racist resistance to integration and desegregation. But they had a whole other ideological dimension to their ideas. They didn't broadcast them. And we can talk about the reasons for that. But once you realize how influential and important they were to the functioning of some of the most violent, and frankly, I don't see how, why we don't consistently refer to these clan type groups as terrorist organizations in the United States. Well, then you have to start asking yourself, and this is sort of what I took from the King stuff and expanded on quite a bit 
in my own book, America's Secret Jihad, was to what extent does this ideological framework for white supremacy inform some of the most well-known instances of domestic terrorism in the United States history, some of the most influential and violent extremist groups, not just Klan groups. And why doesn't anybody else, why haven't it, why hasn't it been acknowledged by scholars? And once you go down that path, what you realize is, is that the reason scholars have missed it is the very reason why these people didn't advertise their positions, didn't accept when they felt as if they could sort of recruit or possibly change the direction of a group, uh, why they join groups oftentimes as opposed to start their own, why they presented false fronts for their groups. And it's because it was a strategic and tactical decision to, and we could go into more depth on this also, to try and gain influence and gain numbers and gain sort of the capacity for mass violence when they knew that their ideas would not go over well, certainly at first, with these groups. And we could talk about this too. This is a tactic you started with the the influence of, and, and Matt and his talk about the influence or growing influence of Christian identity within QAnon circles. I think with, when you talk to Matt, as I have, the way it comes out is not far off of, it's almost like a repeat of what happened back in the late 1950s. It's that these folks join groups who are loosely aligned with their goals and they're very much what we would probably now call accelerationist goals. And they look for their opportunity if it presents itself to try and move those groups in a more direct way towards their kind of accelerationist goals rather than just explicitly come through the door saying, I believe Jews are literally the offspring of Satan and I believe that the end times is going to be a holy race war. They can't come in that way. They can't even come in with really violent, rigorous, overt anti-Semitism. They have to figure out ways of shifting the group or the event in the, that direction without being explicit about that. Uh, I'll close there and let you ask follow question. I hope I didn't take us too far off course there. No, that's perfect. I mean, that seems like like that that kind of pivoting to influence seems to be what it what kind of sets Christian identity apart from the Ku Klux Klan and from kind of American Nazis. I mean, could you go into that a little more? Sort of when we when we. <laughs> conceptualize the milieu of of white supremacy where do we kind of put christian so, identity so you know terrorist scholars have a lot of ways of typologies to sort of categorize 
different styles of terrorism. And I find a lot of that illuminating. But I also found that you know, there was one scholar who, who said, you know what, I'm just going to break it down into two broad categorizations. One is ethno-nationalist and one is ideological. And within ideological, you'd find religious. If the ethno-nationalist tends to have more limited aims, they tend to be reactionary. And they tend to be more selective in how they target their violence. Whereas the ideological has sort of a world-changing goal. They tend to be much broader in their vision of what violence is capable of or can be used for. And they tend to be a little bit less discriminant in their targets. And most of your, of what we've in our heads, folks who, who see white supremacy in American history through the lens of terrorism, I believe mostly correctly see it in the, dire, in the, in the, in the mindset of ethno-nationalists, similar to IRA. So you have, you know, the most obvious example would be the, that is in forefront of my mind. Well, I mean, I'll give two. They're clearly the birth of the Klan and the Reconstruction era was a case of, unfortunately, ethno-nationalist terrorism essentially winning. But they wanted to return back to at least a more racist version of the South than existed in, say, 1871. And then you get to the era which I focus on in the 60s, when thankfully they largely failed to push back against the movement for integration. But that was largely an ethno-nationalist type of mindset. Whereas if you shift to a more ideological mindset, uh, where you would look at Salafi jihadism, if you wanted to look at, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, you've got grand visions there of world-changing theological events that are going to come and just change the whole entire way the world works. And that's where Christian identity, the people who are influenced under that ideology that's where their mind is. And so what you see and why it's missed, again, a lot of the early influence of Christian identity in white power, white supremacist type of movements in the late 50s and 60s is because you have a group of people who could not when they tried in the in the in the forties and fifties, push their more ideological agenda, their anti-Jewish agenda, they were literally getting kicked out of clan groups. Their uh, groups like the we'll talk about J.B. Stoner and Ed Fields, but the you know the um, the you know. Christ, you know, Christian anti-Jewish party type of stuff. Those groups were failing. And so they had to figure out a way of, they didn't abandon their ideology. What they had to do was say, you know, the civil rights movement's happening. 
where there is a groundswell of even soft support for an ethno-nationalist kind of terrorist group. That group targets people of color. And while they might be, uh, and you know, they're like a co-objective of our group, we don't like them either, right? They're part of our vision of a holy race war too. We can focus on, we can join these ethno-nationalist groups who have limited political objectives and take advantage of the soft support and the large membership. And we can maneuver you, you being the the ethno-nationalist group, in a direction without even explicitly talking about it to other members. We can manipulate you in a direction where you will be engaged in the kind of violence that we hope will lead to some kind of religious awakening amongst everyday white people and get us our Armageddon. Our Armageddon is a holy race war. So that's sort of the, the sort of the, the basic way I, I divert it. You have the difference between our conventional Klan and Nazi groups and the people who join those groups with Christian identity affiliation or, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, as the history progresses, become open and more pure, but smaller in terms of being openly Christian identity is that one group has more limited political aims with their terrorism and another group wants to incite mass, a a holy race war that they think will have, you know, bring the, you know, white power, you know, Nazi Jesus type of situation going on. That's interesting. So when, when you sat down to write America's Secret Jihad, you know, you have all your research, but how do you tell the story? For you, like, were you going to tell the story from the perspective of ideology or from the people who are proponents of it or, you know, center, you know, acts of terrorism in the middle and then kind of draw lines from that? What is the sort of the narrative so- design? You have to have a li- some elements of all of them because you can't understand how the individuals are behaving or why the events look the way they do unless you know on the front end where the origins of the you know ethno nationalistic white supremacist anti Semitic situation comes from. But more importantly, for my purposes, the the end times holy race war element of it. But for the most part, I'm looking, and I don't know how well I did because I'm like 1.8 million on the Amazon list. But with America's Secret Jihad, I wanted to tell it through the events and the people who sort of are the through line through those events to some extent, the groups, but especially the individuals and sort of, cause I think that will, you know, a lot of people know what the Mississippi burning case is. Do they know, I mean, I forget, shoot, I don't think virtually any scholars know about the role that Christian identity likely played in, in influencing why that event happened the way it did. 
Um, of course, I have a whole book, but multiple chaps independently, but chapters on how the King assassination is influenced by, by Christian identity. And so the show people as much as anything, because it's sort of my big, one of my huge takeaways is everyone acknowledges scholars all around acknowledge that it was that Christian identity was solidified and cemented really in the late, you know, mid to late 1940s. And they acknowledge that it had a huge influence in the 1980s. And then there's this 35 year gap. And one of my big points is they, it was not dormant and it was not passive. What you had were individuals. And this is why I like to tell it through the same group of people who keep on popping up, what you had and who they eventually influenced. What you have are, are, are individuals who had to make tactical decisions to try and keep their ideology in play and influential and who were inspired by it, who legitimately believed in it. And that's why I sort of, if you look at my book, like sort of first couple of chapters, well, I start with an event and I start with individuals, but then I briefly go into the ideology and the theology. And then probably two thirds, three quarters of my book is going almost event by event that people may know about, but don't know about the influence of Christian identity within it and sort of tease out where you can find that and how the people involved in that are show up all, all the time in the history of white supremacy and that it should not be ignored. Like you shouldn't say, it drives me crazy that, you know, a, a, a serial killer basically inspired the growth of the Christian identity movement. That's ludicrous. I mean, many of these people will acknowledge that uh, William Potter Gale was a hugely influential figure in the uh, Posse Comitatus movement, for instance, in the 70s, you know, predates the serial killer by several years. And then not look at how William Potter Gale was active in what would be an early version of something like a militia movement in the 1960s was a leading pastor in the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, which is the Christian identity church and which became the church of the Aryan nations. So. Um, to answer your question, I largely do it through events and the and the and the individuals that keep on showing up within the events. And I think you'll find things that you did not think had a, this sort of ideological influence. But I think I do. A, I hope I do a pretty good job of of convincing the reader that no, at some level it was there, and sometimes it's at the forefront of the people who plan it, and it being the goal of inciting and provoking a race war. So then when you start writing, how do you, how do you kind of address uh, misconceptions and, and oversights from other scholars? Because like, I think, I think there's only two major texts in my in my understanding of the subject that cover Christian identity. One is your text, and the other one is Michael Barkun. 
Michael, I think that's his first name. Yes. But um, I'm kind of interested in when when you sat down to write America's Secret Jihad, how do you how do you address misconceptions and oversights? Was it actually important for you to kind of address those misconceptions? Yes, very much so. Um, so another element of the book that shows up, especially at the beginning and at the end, is that if you understand our history of ideological domestic terrorism, you can draw a lot of insights into what at the time I wrote the book was the dominant, you know, focus for a lot of people, uh, foreign ideological terrorism, the Salafi jihadists. And so it was really important to me to sort of highlight, and it's very tricky, right? Because I'm writing, you know, I don't have a PhD. I have a master's in political science. Uh, you know, I'm my, my major issue sort of major skill is historical research. I'm a historian and teacher. And these are folks who, you know, have spent their lives studying uh, domestic terrorism. You know, Bruce Hoffman, like big admirer of his work. But it, um, if you're not, I got, and I want to make this clear, I am in many ways lucky. Like, I didn't start out and say, wow, I'm going to find out that this is a highly influential group. It just kept on popping up in my research, especially at first related to King's assassination. But King's assassination connects to other terrorist attacks that happened at that time. And when you dig into the right archives, and I think that's, that's, that's part of where I maybe had an advantage over some of these folks, right? I had a, we're dealing with, and my essential assertion is, is that you're dealing with a group of people who really didn't want to make their, during the times they were most active in the 60s, didn't want to advertise their ideological motivations overtly, even to their own members. So I'm going through files at the National Archives in Maryland that many people have never gone through before. I'm going through a website called the Mary Farrell site that very few people in his, in historical research in general would be tempted to go to because on the surface, it looks like it's uh, the, you know, it's just about John Kennedy's assassination. But when you've placed on your website, digitized versions of millions of records from a review board that one of their sort of areas that they unearthed records from was from the far right and extremist movements connected to John Kennedy. But broadly speaking, you will find millions of digitized records on hate groups from the 60s in that, on that website. Uh, similarly, there's there's a gentleman by the name of Harold Weisberg who filed Freedom of Information Act requests like he was breathing, but also was almost like a hoarder when it came to virtually any, again, connection to John Kennedy's assassination, which I don't want to, you know, divert. 
but absolutely can connect to the far right. So there's stuff that has no obvious connection to the Kennedy assassination, but has tremendous implications for research into domestic terrorist groups. Thousands of files on the Minutemen. Um, transcripts of radio programs from the 1960s. Um, letters from people who are doing this. And you start there, and then I go to other archives. I go to the Birmingham Public Library. I go to Emory University. I then also then take advantage of what Ernie Lazar and his, what he's placing online specifically on right-wing groups. And what that allows me to do is do huge deep dives in a much more efficient manner because of the 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 benefit of digitization and you know search technology and i can draw connections between several different archives different groups and then you go you can go to google books and you can start you know what books do i have to read that discuss this kind of stuff and you said you no know, you had a tough time finding primary material i spent a lot of time on the Chris Joe Jenna Genio website, they've archived, especially Wesley Swift's, but also William Potter Gale's sermons. So you just spend a lot of time cross-referencing your data from multiple different archives and databases. And it's 10 times faster because you could do it through digitization. And then the it 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 smacks you in the face. So I don't begrudge Bruce Hoffman because there weren't the availability of even regular archives as much back when he was doing his work in the 80s. So he would have been, he deserves huge credit, for instance, for saying in the late 1980s that almost every single domestic terrorist group falls under the uh, umbrella of Christian identity which is a pretty bold thing to say, which was largely true. Where, I don't want to say I fault them, but where I, because again, I don't think they would have seen it. It would have been incredibly difficult to follow the trail backwards from the 80s to ask yourself, well, how did it get to this point? I mean, a very obvious question people don't ask themselves is the earliest version of the leaderless resistance stuff that you get from Lewis Beam. And Lewis Beam is such a huge part of Professor Ballou's work, right? Is it Ballou or Bellu? I always I think get it's, that confused. I think it's Ballou. <laughs> um, you know, is Lewis Beam. But why does Lewis Beam have to talk about, in the early 80s, why is he talking about the dangers of large organizations? and the vulnerability of those groups to FBI infiltration. What, what history is he drawing upon? If, if you think that, that Christian identity really didn't, you know, kick off until 1980, well, where, what, what groups are, are being infiltrated and, you know, you know, disintegrated in, you know, 1982, there weren't large white supremacist organizations other than maybe you could argue the Aryan nations. 
But even then, the Aryan nations goes back, the church for the Aryan nations goes back to the 1960s. Right. So what's he drawing on? Well, I can show you a leaderless resistance track from a guy named Richard Cotton that's almost word for word. I mean, Beam may very well have plagiarized it. And I don't know if Cotton plagiarized it from the early 70s because those groups in the 60s were large white supremacist groups that were undone by infiltration and surveillance, and we can talk about that, and were Christian identity in orientation, at least in many of their leader leadership groups. So I, I try and be kind about it because I don't think they simply had access to the stuff that I do. And I'm, I'm, and I would imagine with the utmost respect to people like Professor Ballou and stuff like that, you can't just stick and stay in one archive. You got to be willing to go into other archives. And once you do that, then what I would argue is should be really kind of absurd that a group with huge violent aspirations and they're built into their theology just doesn't do anything for 35 years. And then it becomes obvious once you realize people who knew Sam Bowers, the Grand Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, people who studied him in depth. I talked to people who knew him. That's another thing. Are you interviewing people who knew people from this time period? Um, he was undoubtedly Christian identity. The question is just how early he was. He's leading the most violent clan organization in America. You can find from informant reports, um, really not informant reports, but a book by the most important informant on that group, that privately, very privately to his most closest lieutenants, he would talk about how he wants to start a race war. He just can't say anything to the average, quote unquote, this is his own words, redneck, because they wouldn't understand why, what, he's, what his goals are, right? Um, you have to dig to find out that J.B. Stoner and pretty much every leader of the National States Rights Party is uh, a member of, is, is, is some of them are like ministers within the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, which again was a Christian identity group. And you have to know a little bit more about the history of a group like the National States Rights Party. It's not going to show up in virtually any history, even of terrorism. They were more violent than the Klan. The Klan actually tried to distance themselves from the National States Rights Party just because they have a political front. And deliberately, this is an FBI document, shows a political name to sort of disguise their violent intentions doesn't mean they're not violent. They were incredibly violent, provocatively violent. And that's the point that I try and make is one of the things you've got to start asking and looking at is when certain acts of violence seem way over the top in terms of their provocative nature, is that because someone involved in the planning and plotting of the plot hopes that they can turn it into a much more egregious and sort of event that adds gasoline to the fire of whatever is happening in America in terms of racial tensions at the time.
I hope that answers your question. No, it does. Um, so before we, we kind of get into the deep dive of the history, I want to ask one last kind of meta question, which is, you know, how does the study of CI kind of enhance our understanding of domestic extremism? Because I think like post 1-6, the, the term domestic extremism, DVE, has kind of seeped into the, the lexicon, so to speak. And so, you know, how does our understanding of CI, the, both as, as a ideology and as a matter of history, enhance our understanding of domestic extremism? Well, for one thing, and maybe we'll go in a little bit more depth later on, what Bruce Hoffman said was very true. And if you go into the late 1980s, you're going to find that virtually every group that existed was heavily CI influenced in terms of domestic terrorism. And, and when you look at his book, and he was arguably now, but certainly then, almost alone. Like he was, he was the guy when it came to um, scholarship on domestic extremism. He puts out a book, and in 1988, that book, I think it was 88, that is domestic extremism is, is by far the largest topic of discussion. He mentions outside foreign terrorism, but we forget how, how sort of, I don't want to say ubiquitous, but problematic those groups were even in the late 1980s. And you go to 2000. And you go to the Megiddo report from the FBI, and when the FBI comes out with a report on domestic extremism, yes, Al-Qaeda is now in the document because of stuff they did in the 90s. But CI is there as a prominent potential source of terrorism. And I say this because they were the – they were, as one former Grand Dragon of Ku Klux Klan told me, it was like in the ether. It was the air that people breathed from the 80s through the 2000s and, and through, the, through the 90s in terms of what was motivating domestic extremists, especially in the leadership. What happens is, is that people say, oh, well, it lost its influence by the mid-90s and then they, they sort of forget about it. And I should say, people, I am a huge fan of the scholars, the young scholars who are that you have on your show, like Matt and Alex Newhouse and Sarah Hightower and all those folks um, uh, who are refocusing on this groups, on CI. What's lost is how much CI influenced even these other groups that, you know, oh, well, in the late 1990s, you'll, you'll be here. It was uh, the Odinists who took over, the racist Odinists, the neo-pagan, the racist neo-pagans. It was Church of the Creator. Well, guess what? Those folks were heavily influenced by Christian identity. Uh, and so if you move forward through the 2000s, you still have, you have, uh, and uh, credit to Sarah for pointing this out to me with, with people like James Mason. You have people who are still sort of like Sam Bowers was in the, you know, 1960s, almost covert CI, who still have huge influence 
on white supremacist thinking. And I think what people like Matt are finding and others and this accelerationist like think tank that came out, which is amazing, is that CI is starting to reassert itself and they're and they're doing it in similar ways to the way I described in these groups did in the less technologically advanced age. They're warming them up with the ideas that they align on, which could be, you know, anti-government, can be racism, just like it was in the 60s, in hopes that they can set up potential people, radicalize them towards CI accelerationism. So, you know, have I seen people identify explicit CI people on the... Uh, you know, involved in January 6th. I haven't seen it run down as a major, you know, intellectual thread. But I don't know until you get deep into the heart of some of these people, from my experience, that you're going to find that they're there. You could absolutely find them at the Unite the Right rally, right? I I won't, there was a, there's a famous, um, researcher who I won't mention, who I brought up, you know, a particular member of the um, League of the South, some leaders are Christian identity, and he poo-pooed it. And then I, I sent them a podcast, which made it very obvious. Yeah. So then is there an ulterior agenda going on at those rallies? I think there may very well be. It might not be everybody there. It certainly probably isn't the rank and file. But it's very important to understand, I think, first off, foreign terrorism, because my argument, and maybe we'll get into it, is that the life cycle of Christian identity-oriented, ideologically-oriented white supremacist terrorism predates, but follows and parallels very closely what you see happen with Salafi jihadism. And then you really have to focus and worry about the potential of groups that ideologies that people acknowledge, the Odinist types that are influenced and have a, a root in CI, as well as the potential for people in CI to see an opportunity to basically hijack what would be as I categorized before, ethno-nationalist terrorists and maneuver them somehow into something that's much more provocative and potentially dangerous and make it accelerationist in nature. So that would be how I'd answer your question. Interesting. So I want to pivot into into the content of the book and in examining the history. And the first thing that kind of stands out about the book is that you cover a very long time period, I think from the forties to Oklahoma city. So 1995 and within that sort of broad 50 years worth of history, 50, 60 years of history, you know, how did you, how did you say like, you know, how did you say that, this event or this group of people were influenced by CI? What was kind of the markers you were looking for? Was it a matter of, 
you know, kind of examining the milieu or, you know, what, what were kind of the markers to say that this was influenced by CI or this was kind of CI adjacent? So it was sort of a mixture of sort of what you might call a network analysis and then what you might call semiotic or rhetorical analysis. And so the sort of network analysis um, is, so you can find events where no one disputes that the, the driving force was, say, the National States Rights Party. So, okay, so who's, you know, setting the, the events in motion? Who's the leadership of the National States Rights Party? Well, literally every single leader of that group was CI or CI adjacent. And, and, and the way I can establish it were a few ways. Um, first of all, some of it was blatantly obvious. So West Coast head was sort of the West Coast regional leader was um, Connie Lynch, the Reverend Connie Lynch, who was a minister in the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, right? And it is no surprise, you want to talk about the origins of stochastic terrorism, that Connie Lynch shows up and he's with his friend J.B. Stoner, who I'll get to, and he is with his rhetoric igniting huge inflammatory events. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Christian identity. Hey, Jews are satanic. He just plays on the environment that he's in, which is, you know, just seething with ethno-nationalist racism. So, and he does this in city after city. So there's your West Coast head, your East Coast head, is Oren Petito, the Reverend Oren Petito, a minister in the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, who doesn't get nearly enough credit, if you want to use the word credit, for being, for instance, the person who really added gasoline to the flames of the 1962 Ole Miss race riots, right? Um, but then you go up in the in the line, so you go to um, Admiral Cromelin. So John Cromelin, who was identified, you know, in FBI documents as the, you know, leading spokesman of violent anti-Semitism in America, he's on the mailing list. I got access to the mailing list for the tapes of Wesley Swift's sermons for the Church of Jesus Christ Christian. Wesley Swift, Lynch, Petito all came and openly campaigned for him when he ran at first for the Senate. He would later run for, you know, like president or vice president. Um, okay, so you shift over. Ed Fields, who may have been connected to proto-Christian identity all the way back to when it first started in the 40s through an accelerationist group. I'm talking 1945, 1946 here. The Colombians in... Atlanta. He's on the mailing list for Wesley Swift. Um, you've got J.B. Stoner, who wrote a proto, you have to read his book. It's not quite fully fleshed out because Christian identity wasn't fully fleshed out. But you have a book by him in the mid-1940s. Um, I should say it wasn't well-known nationally in 1945. It was probably fleshed out. 
he has a proto Christian identity book that he himself wrote where he tries to argue that Jews are the devil's children. He doesn't use, you know, as sophisticated theological arguments as somebody like Wesley Swift. When it comes time for them to appoint a pastor in the National States Rights Party, they choose Gordon Winrod. Well, anyone at home can look up Gordon Winrod. He's like the founding family of Christian identity, like the, all the children down to the grandchildren. He's one of the leading lights of Christian identity. This is, I mean, unless you believe in really enormous coincidences, it's kind of hard to look at a group that emerged out of the Christian anti-Jewish party and has every single leadership position occupied by somebody who is Christian identity directly or Christian identity adjacent who actually engages in the most provocative violence you find or attempted violence you find in the 1960s and late 1950s. And I mean, the way I would put it to anybody is, I mean, if I describe that with Al-Qaeda, if I said, okay, I have a group called the, um, the, um, you know, Hanbali Sharia political party, right? And you looked at it and every leader was Salafi jihadist, which is a sub, the most extreme subset of that. And they were engaged in provocative acts of terrorism. Who would say that's not a Salafi jihadist terrorist group? No one. But because it was so easy to lose the influence of the national states. People don't even know about the national states rights party for the most part, easy to lose their story and to say, Oh, well, they ran a guy for president twice. Um, That's where, you know, I think I, 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 again, I'm almost losing track of the question here, but, um, that's how I went about trying to define it. So, so network analysis. And then um, if we go to semiotic, like what they say in their symbols, what I did with Sam Bowers is, first of all, it's undoubted, right? You can find the people who were closest to him, that he was Christian identity by 1967 and 1968. The only question is, was he Christian identity you know, back in 64. Now we know he could have easily have picked it up when he went to school in Southern California. So where it's just where it's sort of the home base of where it started in the forties. So I dig deep and, and what you find is when he engages in the Mississippi burning killings, which for, I mentioned it before for the viewers who don't remember, this is the killing of, three civil rights workers in Mississippi. The bodies are buried and hidden. I think there's a significance of that. Maybe I'll get to it later. And there, it it riles up the whole nation. I also think that may have been deliberately plotted by Sam Bowers. And they're eventually, their bodies are found and they're killed. Two of the three are white and Jewish. And so... You know, again, 
they're civil rights workers. It's the beginning of Freedom Summer. It's the very start. It very much was to the rank and file people who were actually did the killing. A hundred percent, a shot across the bow to the people who were about to come to Mississippi and try and change Mississippi and integrate Mississippi in Freedom Summer. It is a hundred percent that. For those people, what about Sam Bowers, right? We know he's the mastermind and he planned it. We know he's Christian identity by 67, 68. Was he by 60? Was he in 64? Well, if you go to the propaganda that was being put out by the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, propaganda, we know that Sam Bowers made sure he personally wrote and edited. Jump to the back in the literal fine print. And what you will find, and this is sort of my one of my big approaches is you will find verses from the Bible cited and phrases like the synagogue of Satan that are almost exclusive to Christian identity. And the way I, you know, one of them, if you find one of them, if you find, you know, the section from John, you know, the Jews or the devil, whatever, um, I don't say, okay, that person's Christian identity. But if I find three, four, five, that's very hard to miss. And I didn't do that. And, and, and I almost did this systematically. So what I did was you want to make sure that this isn't conventional, you know, old school Southern Baptist justification for racism and segregation. Well, I went to the archive at Bob Jones University and they have a database of, of all the sermons that were ever given. If you know Bob Jones University, I mean, up until the 2000s, they were they, in, you know, wouldn't let, you know, interracial dating and, you know, proms happen and stuff like that. And you it's very rare, if at all, to find the kind of passages and biblical citations from Christian identity. The, the unique ones, there's several of them that don't even show up in conventional Southern biblical justifications for segregation. So when I see multiple examples of them, and by the way, you can find them in Josh Ernest in the Poway shooting, uh, m- my antenna goes way up. And that's too much of a coincidence. And so you trace it. And, and I, you know, I don't want to go too much off tail, but I, I can... I have Bowers wasn't on on um, Wesley Swift's mailing list, but his closest lieutenant, a person who worshipped the ground Bowers walked on, absolutely was and was so committed to Christian identity as early as 1965 that he forced his wife and his children to kneel and listen with threat of physical abuse to Wesley Swift's sermons. The, the wife had to escape with her children. And I talked to her and she said, there's no way uh, Sam Bowers is taking the lead from this guy, Burris Dunn. Burris Dunn is absolutely taking the lead from Sam Bowers. So again, I mean, I go through, it's, it's sometimes unique, but those are the two broad ways. Network analysis, oftentimes supported by um looking deep dives into their rhetoric and their publications. 
So then something that, that strikes me while reading the book is how, A, the, the, the length of time, and then B, how kind of, how adaptive and dynamic Christian identity ends up being. That it kind of, in every iteration of the movement, from uh, its opposition to the civil rights, mo- uh, civil and, and voting rights, to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it's always there. So as a researcher, you know, what do you, what influenced the ebb and flow of Christian identity? Was it kind of parallel to the ebb and flow of the broader movement, or was there something else going on? I think big picture, yes. Um, And then there's some other elements to, that I think play a real role although they apply to the broader movement in some extent too, which is the response of government and law enforcement. Uh, But big picture, they're responding oftentimes to the broader trends in the general white supremacist, what again, you might call ethno-nationalist movements, because early on, they see those groups as their ticket to an accelerationist type of violence. So, but here's where things sort of, where they can divert. So when you hit 64 and 65, and thankfully the ethno-nationalist conventional KKK type folks lose, right? They, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act really is a huge blow to the appeal and size of Ku Klux Klan groups. They basically dis the, the membership goes down, you know, many mag, you know, you know, multiple levels, you know, 80%, 90%. Who are the people who stick around? When you follow that, what you start to see is the people who stuck around were the people who started listening to those Wesley Swift sermons in Mississippi, for instance, they had what they called Swift parties where people would get together just to listen to Wesley Swift sermons on audio tape. And you'll, you find if you look at groups like the um, National Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, again, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, that they become much smaller, but the people who remain are much more open and much more already were influenced by CI. And that's because, remember, the ethno-nationalist people who disappear, they're reactive. They're reactionaries. They want to keep the Southern way of life, so-called Southern way of life, in place. But the the Christian identity oriented people are ideological. They're proactive. They have dreams of a holy race war. And so they don't lose their mojo when everyone else does. They hang around on the possibilities. But what sort of two double blow in the late 1960s is that Wesley Swift dies, so they lose their charismatic leader. But more than anything, and it's a very controversial topic that maybe we'll go into more detail later, law enforcement, without even realizing it, 
really undermines groups that they don't realize have this heavy element of Christian identity. Although I shouldn't say all of them, like the California attorney general saw pretty clearly, you know, he might not have used the word Christian identity because that doesn't really become part of the parlance until 70s or so. But he realized the ideological influence. But you start getting surveillance and you start getting infiltration and the combination of those two are devastating, I would argue, to a lot of ideological groups because these groups are innately paranoid. I mean, if you think Jews are like kidnapping people off the street and having blood sacrifices, uh, you're pretty darn paranoid. So you plant the seeds of paranoia and, you know, expand them and let them grow in any group, it's going to, these groups were tended to fragment anyway, but with that, they really start destroying each other from within. Plus, they're constantly worried that they're being watched. I mean, Sam Bowers practically had a, you know, like it was like, you know, trying to get through the inner sanctum of the CIA to go to some of his meetings when when things started getting intense. So those two things really limit the groups. But then when there's ebb and flow there, when other charismatic leaders come along or the uh, federal government starts losing sight of domestic extremism, you start to see those groups sort of reborn, but in different forms. And, And you have your strategists, your Lewis Beams and stuff like that, who are like, well, you know, large organizations like the Minutemen in the 1960s. And we say large, it's relative. I mean, it's much larger than the order, which we may talk about. They're not going to work. You've got to go to cell-based. And then eventually he rewrites that, and that often gets lost. And he starts talking more about, I hate even using the word, quote-unquote lone wolf type of of terrorism. They're evolving in in response to external forces. So... Um, so it's both external forces, but they're also always paying attention to opportunities from sort of the wider historically oriented ethno-nationalist racism you'll find in the nat- in, in the United States to see if they can piggyback on that and exploit it. So then I'm kind of, I mean, like my thinking or my sort of understanding of it, as you've told me, as you've kind of argued, is that even even if you remove the group, right, the, the ethno-nationalist group, even if you remove the Klan or the Nazis, you know, CI keeps persisting. And it's... And, I, I think what, what kind of stood out to me was th- uh, this line in the book, and you kind of said it earlier, which was the use of like technology, like tapes. People were going to Swift parties and listening to the ser- sermons, and it doesn't seem kind of far off from today, where instead of you know audio cassettes, it's the internet or it's TikToks. But I mean, kind of, uh, can you explore for us how? 
why CI was so persistent and sort of how it keeps getting transmitted and reproduced the ideology. Well, well, first of all, it's an idea. And I, and I think this is a, I'm glad you refined me in this direction. Um, It's ideological. It's an idea. So when with ethno-nationalist groups, like take the IRA, when you get the accords in uh, the UK, they've either gotten enough of what they wanted, none of what they wanted, and, and it's the writings on the wall or what have you. They got enough of what they wanted that the need to engage in terrorism goes away and the cause in many ways goes away. So if you go to the 1870s, the Ku Klux and, you know, the Ku Klux Klan largely disappears in the, by the eight, you know, late 1880s because they unfortunately sort of kind of won, right? They got what they wanted. They had limited political objectives. They reemerge at other times under different sort of veneers, but that's, you know, that's the nature of an, a, a, you know, an ethno-nationalist type of group. They have limited political goals. An idea that especially one as fantastical or absurd or whatever you want to call it as we're going to have the battle of Armageddon is going to be a battle between you know, white Europeans and on one side, the force of God and what have you. And on the other side is, you know, the satanic Jews manipulating people of color. You know, that's not going to happen at all, period. But it's it's certainly not going to happen in anybody's, you know, lifetime, obviously. So that goal is always there. And to the person who's looking to try and for a for a larger cause and to try and explain their their sort of mindset in a larger framework, it's always gonna be have the capacity to appeal to them. So the idea doesn't die, it, it stays on there. It would be like so it would be a absurd to from for somebody to post, you know. 1962 propaganda from the Ku Klux Klan because those days are long gone. That's not going to have any appeal to a budding neo-Nazi in, you know, 2015. But an idea that white people were ordained as the true chosen people, white Christians and not Jews, that's could be true to that kind of a person at any point in time. So the ideas can persist for people and remain online and remain on appealing to anybody who's looking to try and do some research and find them. But then you have the additional element that there, and this is why the whole lone wolf narrative breaks down in large part. There are people who are actively trying to put those narratives and have been since the earliest days of the internet to put those ideas out there in places where people can find them on message boards, on websites. So if, you know, somebody who's looking for a larger purpose and a larger framework can gravitate towards them. Now, as I said, there's a lot of competing ideologies now, 
and have been for a while since the 90s. But they're so similar. And I, I know that they have, you know, like if you went to a neo-pagan racist, they'd have probably bad things to say again about somebody in CI. But the origins of neo-pagan racism come from, in large part, someone who was associated with a minister in CI, James Warner. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say, or people like David Lane, who was in the order, which was heavily CI influenced. And again, all that happens is they're like, they, oh, we, this isn't, it's almost like Protestantism out of Catholicism. This isn't good enough for my purposes. I'm going to embrace a new religion and ideology. So it's always there, I think, for people to gravitate to. And you have people who are trying to put the ideas out there. And nowadays, and this is the stuff that gets followed by people like Sarah and Matt, um, you have people who follow the way that these folks are working on internet groups and it's not far off as you said before from the way it worked when somebody joined a clavern with ci in the back of their head in 1965 if that answers your question i'm also curious do in your view does the theology and and sort of the ideology stay consistent i mean is it this sounds like a chicken and the egg problem, but is CI influencing these groups more or are the groups influencing CI more? Because it, it just, it's so fascinating to me how resilient it is and how it, in every instance, CI is the one that is kind of being more influential, right? So like uh, going back to our, our conversation with Matt, it, 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 I was kind of taken back by the fact that a lot of the CI folks were able to influence Q, QAnon, but QAnon wasn't able to kind of change the core ideology or theology of CI. There were, it was almost a one-way street of influence. So looking back at the historical record, is that sort of, is that, is that what's happening or is, is the theology well, and the ideology more flexible? I think, you know, this is a real interesting question. I think you have, on the one hand, you know, almost like <clears throat> a conservative type of argument that, you know, a conservative would make for like the institution of marriage, right? This idea that there's this sort of organic sort of experimentation that gets done, almost like a survival of the fittest. And, you know, by merit of the fact that you survived A, B, and C, that's probably a sign that the nature of your ideology is adaptable enough or resilient enough that it's going to keep on going. So CI survived Cointopro. CI survived the death of Wesley Swift. CI survived this sort of period of fragmentation in the early 70s uh, and just by the fact that it did that is a sign that maybe the way it presents its ideas uh, and again this is somewhat speculative and I really you know you're, you're causing me to, to think about something that maybe I should have thought about even more concretely I'm glad you did 
so I'm sort of speculating and thinking this through while I'm talking to you, is that maybe your argument could be by sort of attaching itself and modifying Christianity, which, you know, is the foundational religion or the, you know, the most broadly held religion in the United States, that on the one hand, as I argued in my book, at first it makes it harder for them to sort of smack you in the face with some of their very idiosyncratic interpretations, say, of the book of Genesis. But nonetheless, they are attaching themselves to a religious ideology that if somebody is trying to figure out how to resolve in their head what they learned in Sunday school with their angst and sort of violent tendencies towards people of color, say, Christian identity offers that media. It offers that middle ground. So I do think that it might be that edge there. I do think they've sort of been sort of forged in fire, so to speak, too, over time. Whereas these other groups pop up in less friendly times and therefore might not stand the test of time. But I would say it's, 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 it's something along those lines. Um, I wouldn't say, again, I mean, I think someone would have a very good argument that, say, from 2000, you know, 1998 to 2006, CI did lose some of its mojo because some very similar groups, which were more, quote unquote, muscular and militant, came to the fore. But CI has a way of hanging around at the sort of low ebb and then finding a way of expanding itself by aligning itself with other ideologies like Q. And it doesn't surprise me if something pre, if you have an ideology that predates something by 50 years, well, Q is like, I mean, I'm not an expert on Q. I've had, you know, I've dallied in it and I've had some interactions with people. They seem to be changing, you know, every month what their ideology is, right? That's the nature of a new group. You have this core group that doesn't change. It's, I think it's much more likely for the core longer term group to be able to manipulate the evolution of a shorter or you know, younger group than it is for the shorter younger group to influence the core group. That would be my guess. And it's they kind of- were the first ideologically white supremacist oriented group, you know, from the forties. I mean, that's kind of interesting because the more I think about it, it's like, you know, it Christian identity kind of benefits from the white supremacist movement being a milieu, right? It can, you know, all it has to do is kind of just glom on to one group or one set of, you know, new ideologies and it, it kind of can build its constituent base. I don't, or faithful. I don't, how would you describe that's a a great way of putting it? Um, Yeah. So I guess the next step here would be um, you've mentioned him. 
and that's Wesley Swift. And if we can maybe go into the history of Wesley Swift, not Swift. <laughs> I think I'm missing Yeah, Wesley Swift. So, yeah. <laughs> so Wesley Swift, unfortunately from my home state of New Jersey, um, he goes, he, he has race, racist inclinations. He goes over to the West Coast and there's a group of seminarians over there who they're building on what are decades worth of sort of different strands that go into Christian identity. There is the British Israelism strand. There's the American sort of variant on that. There's good old fashioned American, you know, racism and anti-Semitism in there. There's, uh, you know, on just general American nationalism. And then you have, you know, development of Nazism overseas and sort of their race theory. And it all blends together to influence these seminarians and these seminarians. And, and you also have this racist anthropology that connects to British Israelism, which places, you know, tries to explain sort of the dominance again this is their um articulating their ideas dominance of the white race in terms of you know the story of the tribes of israel and so there have been hints and proto elements of something like christian christian identity for a long time what these seminarians do is they really sort of cement it into a coherent ideology and Wesley Swift, from the perspective of an evangelist for the ideas, is by far the most talented of the group. He has immediate experience, including afterwards, with violent elements of the Ku Klux Klan in California. California is an interesting state. You know, everybody knows the grapes of wrath. What they tend to not realize is, is that where people were coming from, from Oklahoma, tended to be a pretty racist. I'm not trying to, you know, broadly label, but it was. When the Okies come over, they're taking that element with them, which is why Southern California, in part, is such a hotbed over time for the development of white supremacist groups they have the they have this sort of lineage there and wesley swift starts articulating in a sermon and he's a he's a talented speaker he's very charismatic his radio program initially it's it's largely women who are his main audience he's broadcasting basically out of hollywood he gets hundreds of thousands of local listeners and he starts building a base there. And his ideas, his sermons, they start taking tapes of his sermons, which you could still listen to today. You can listen to Wesley Swift's sermons last I checked, uh, but it's been a while on YouTube. Just take some Pepto-Bismol with you. Um, and you can then, it, it starts to spread. And it sort of spreads out. There's some, 
there's some connection to it that I still feel like needs is open to even more in-depth exploration out of Georgia and Atlanta that I believe came from Canada. But then there is a huge element of it with Wesley Swift in California. And Wesley Swift spreads these ideas. And it takes some time for the following to build. Um, but he finds the right kinds of people, even in the 50s. And then by mid to late 60s, he's a phenomenon. So he's sort of the godfather of Christian identity because he's not just a part of formulating the ideas. He's the, the and I hate to make this, this reference because I'm really not trying to attack conventional Christianity. He's the Paul of Christian identity. So, and his church, the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, becomes a major sort of operational, almost home base for this, for Christian identity oriented ideas. But he also creates subgroups. The Christian Defense League is a very sort of clear example of this. He uses the church and William Potter Gale, who was a military man under MacArthur and a very influential early ideologue and Christian identity, almost Swift's right-hand man, although they have some contentious relationships. They use the church to whittle down to find the most extreme members, and then they go even further and find even more extreme members to almost have layers in what we call the Christian Defense League to use for potential violent purposes as time goes on. So before exploring some of the, you know, other points of Wesley Swift's life, something that really just stuck out to me in, in what you were saying was how much the South isn't involved um, in, in kind of CI's evolution, because you mentioned that Swift is from New Jersey, and then he initially experiences success in Southern California. So if if you could, uh, can you touch on maybe the geographic elements and why why New Jersey and Southern California? Like, when does it start hitting well, the it, South, so to speak? Um, so so the, the, those strains that I said informed Christian identity, um, they're not flowing, you know, from Memphis. They're flowing from places like Canada, they're flowing from places like Detroit. So, you know, some of your listeners may know, some might not be aware that Henry Ford was a major propagator of anti-Jewish propaganda. Well, the, the editor of his paper, which had wide hundreds of thousands of circulation, Dearborn Independent, was somebody who's an early sort of, I don't want to say adapter, but influence on Christian identity, William Cameron. So it's 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 the 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 elements of it are are or are are coming from all parts of North America and again overseas. And I don't think it's there's necessarily a method to the madness other than you had 
you know, sometimes history just works out where you have a group of like-minded people in Southern California. Now, I should say, and again, I think it deserves even more exploration than I do in my book, that there, that there's a group called the Columbians out of Georgia. And uh, J.B. Stoner was associated with it. Ed Fields, who's still alive, but he was like a teenager, was associated with it. Um, Emery Burke was associated with it. These are all people who become CI or CI adjacent over time. This was a group in Atlanta that actually wanted to do the whole, let's see if we can use racism and sneak in anti-Semitism and start a race war here that grows across the whole country. They were talking about that in, you know, 1945, right? When they raided, they being the local law enforcement in Georgia, raided the Colombians, they found what scholars say are proto, are all these proto Christian identity books in their belongings. And the other thing they found, interestingly, was a lot of material that was connected to Canadian fascism and nationalism. And what we know is Canada, there was, there's a very sort of early influential book that really expresses a lot of the early tenets of Christian identity that is, it comes from Canada. And so my speculation, and I, and I don't think it's too, too great a leap is somehow and how it got there would be a fascinating discussion, but there's no doubt there was influence of Canadian fascism on this group in Georgia that this early version of Christian identity found its way to Georgia almost at the same time that it was really being solidified almost independently in California, in Southern California, and the Southern California folks took the lead, but I think eventually those groups merged by the 1950s. So then, um, could we sort of dig into his career as the civil rights and the civil, uh, the Voting Rights Act movements kind of take off? What, where is he in the 60s? So. His radio show, certainly within the regions around California, is hugely popular. He's starting by 63, 64, 65. His tapes are starting to be distributed nationally. People who were influenced by him, some of them have set up shop in other places, some of these Georgia folks have linked up with him, like J.B. Stoner and Ed Fields. And again, they're and, and a guy named Joseph Miltier. They're getting his tapes. They're on his mailing list. He's on their agenda. He's promoting and really is sort of uh, almost like unofficial cheerleader of the National States Rights Party. And his ideas are again are starting to really take hold with a by the even the late 1950s in the civil rights movement 
with a select group of pretty smart and tactical-minded racist white supremacists, some of whom have been on the, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid for, you know, since late 40s, early 50s. He starts seeing the civil rights movement as the beginning of what he would call and this gets into where the overlap even with conventional Christianity, some of the the motifs, what we call the zero hour. So he sees, for instance, James Meredith's integration of Ole Miss and especially the willingness of rank and file white people to engage in violence there when incited by his people, by people like Oren Petito, who is a minister in the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, he sees that as a sign, like literal sign, like religious sign. He also had ufology and all kinds of, you know, occult almost type stuff associated. He starts seeing it as a sign that we're in the beginning stages of the end times. Now, again, it's their version of the end times. There's no rapture. Uh, and the people who are followers of Christian identity, and really that's in their minds, is going to be white Christians as a whole once they awaken to the reality of racism, so to speak. They're going to play an active part in making it happen. That's part of Christian identity theology. That's why they stockpile weapons. That's why they engage in violence. So he starts seeing the civil rights movement as sort of the beginning of the end times. And then a lot of his sermons start going in that direction. And so what he starts seeing, you got to think about it's, it's, it's coincidental in some ways. Some of it's because his people and people influenced by him are adding gasoline to the fire again. But think about 62 onward what happens is, is you get more and more white retaliation against, you know, nonviolent civil rights protesters. It's fulfilling. It seems to be fulfilling the prophecies that he's talking about. And shoot, after 65, you start, you know, the rise of black nationalism, black Panther party. You he they really start seeing like, so, he celebrates the Watts riots, right? Um, as a sign, again, a religious sign that we're in the end times. And by the way, if you're somebody who's sort of on the fence with, you know, Christian identity, and you're seeing what's happening in America's cities in 64, 65, 66, 67, Think about what kind of appeal somebody who's calling those shots, so to speak, two years, three years, four years in advance might have. So that's sort of the place he occupies. And I would argue by the late 1960s, as I said before, his ideas really start to resonate more with a smaller number of remaining residual white supremacists. But then he gets sick and dies. 
So then could we, um, something that caught my eye while reading um, was Swift's rhetoric during the civil rights movement. And I think somebody had commented that it was kind of accelerationist or proto-accelerationist. Absolutely. So could we maybe deep dive what his, you know, what were the core ideas of his sermons against the civil rights movement? Well, again, he's not, there's an element of pushback in the sense that he really doesn't want to see race mixing and stuff like that. Right. Um, in, in the miscegenation kind of way where, you know, black woman, white man, white man, black woman have babies, right? But as a whole, he's looking at what might otherwise be scaring even, you know, sympathetic civil rights people, the kind of violence that emerges in the stuff. He's seeing it as signs of the end times. So you remember the end times in you know, fundamentalist Christianity is a time of, of tribulation. Now, conventional Christianity, those folks are raptured up in fundamentalist Christianity. In his world, he's telling his people, you've got to be prepared to exploit this and become basically soldiers in the army of God, right? The time is going to come when it's going to be clear to you that you need to, you know, you know, go into your shed where you have, you know, crazy amounts of these folks had crazy amounts of weapons. Um, and like heavy machine gun, I'm not talking like, you know, 22 calibers that you're going to have to be the front lines. And eventually, you know, everyday white people are going to see the light and join you. And we're going to have our holy race war. So he is, again, he's telling people, don't let Watts get you down. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a paraphrase. It's just one more sign that God's about to come and, and create this, you know, thousand year white, all white, pure white world, right? We're going to get our, our, you know, heaven on earth, our kingdom of God is going to be, you know, you know, Hitler's dream kind of situation. That's, that's what he's doing. The civil rights, he is using the civil rights movement and the response to it. And especially as you hit the mid 1960s, the frustration with the lack of progress on it, because the civil rights movement was so focused on legal issues that really only concentrate in the South. He's seeing that as Signs that it can happen and the people who are following him, especially the people who are sort of the elite in white supremacist groups, they see their opportunity to fundamentally engage in acceleration type ideas. So even in 63, one of the things I write about is, you know, everybody pays attention to the bombing in Birmingham of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Well, I established pretty clearly devout followers of Christian identity show up in Birmingham before it happens, which is very interesting. And then afterwards are trying to kill Martin Luther King. And I know, you know, people on the civil rights side who were down there 
when this was going on. And what you have to appreciate is this is the first major riot following that bombing in the history of Birmingham. And the Birmingham police are and local law enforcement and national, they have heavy machine guns on the streets. And, you know, what would have happened if you killed Martin Luther King? You know, I asked my friend, Reverend Ed King, not related, white minister, civil rights activist. He said it would have been a bloodbath down there. And he was marching, you know, in protest. And he said it wouldn't have just been a bloodbath down there. It would have been a bloodbath in most of the major cities in the American South from everything he had experienced. And it doesn't end there. So they can't get to King. King comes but leaves. They couldn't get a clear shot. A shrapnel bomb goes off. Now, the difference between a shrapnel bomb and another bomb and other kinds of conventional explosives that had been used to, say, blow up churches down in Birmingham, they called it Bombingham, is that they're designed to wound and kill. Now, thankfully, that did not happen. That is very uncommon for the Klan. Even the bombing of the church, some people aren't sure if it was intended to go off when it went off to, and kill those four girls. But without question, the shrapnel bomb was. Well, I found material where J.B. Stoner, who again, he's a National States Rights Party. He is at worst CI adjacent, said that that bomb was his baby. Again, what would have happened if that actually killed a large number of people on the heels of a bomb that killed four young girls on the heels of the first major riots in Birmingham, you would have had mass violence. And it doesn't take, it, this isn't presentism. The, the, I should say this is the second major riot. The last, the first major riot actually occurred six months or about six months before, four or five months before, for just an attempt to kill Martin Luther King that failed. Right. So imagine what one actually would do after those girls were killed. That was National States Rights Party, too. Right. So they knew they knew what they were trying to do. And it certainly feels like accelerationist to me. And that's the kind of language that was coming out of Wesley Swift. Why did you hide the bodies of those civil rights workers in the Mississippi burning case? They didn't hide bodies in lynchings and other cases. They didn't go through great effort. It draws in the FBI. And you're saying, well, you're being speculative here if you think that, that uh, you know, Sam Bowers wanted to draw in the FBI to create a race war, except I have uh, the informant who sent him to prison saying that privately, I'm talking very privately, that's exactly what Sam Bowers was saying he wanted to do, to create a race war. All of these people are followers of Swift. So it is absolutely, does Swift say, go bomb a place in Birmingham to create violence and acceleration? No. Does he say things that a listener could take as a cue? Absolutely. So before we examine sort of the assassination of Medgar Evers and MLK, I kind of want to 
do a little, a quick dive into the CI conception of violence. Because we've already touched on it in this idea of an apocalyptic race war. Um, in your mind, that's, this is kind of accelerationist before, you know, accelerationism even comes into the lexicon. Is that... Absolutely. I mean, this is pretty much an accelerationist mindset before people came up with the accelerationist word. I was, you know, and I I looked, I said, I think I have something of an excuse. When I, when I was researching and writing the book, I wasn't even coming across the word accelerationist. It certainly has taken off in the last several years. And I love it. If I rewrite the book, it's going to become major you know, conceptual idea, but these folks were accelerationist. Again, I, I, the Colombians in 1945 in Georgia were accelerationist. They wanted to provoke violence in hopes of creating a wider race war in the United States. So the idea goes, goes back decades and it doesn't surprise me and we've talked about this earlier, that given the ubiquity of CI in the 80s and early 90s, that accelerationist thinking finds its way into groups that follow it. Again, you might be an accelerationist and not even get the sort of lineage of the whole idea without knowing what CI is. And again, their conception of violence, to your point, is they want provocative violence. They want violence that doesn't just cause something immediate, that doesn't just send a message to, you know, civil rights workers get out of town. They want violence that infuriates people and leads to a cycle of violence. And and again, there are people like Tommy Terrence, who was a CI devotee, Swift devotee, and chief terrorist for the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, who converted later on, he flat out says in his book, my hope and dream was a race war was come. We were going to create a dynamic where the violence was provocative. It would elicit a response from, and we're talking late 60s here, Black militants and leftist militants. And then we'd get a response from a broader range of white sort of you know racist types and it would grow until as he said our hope and dream was a race war would come so in that in that conception of violence there's no there's no political end right so there's no like you know building a a white utopia or you know not getting civil rights acts passed i mean what is is there a political end in this conception or is it just, I know? think to the extent that there is, it's all a means to the much larger theological end. Um, so to the extent that there's a political end, there's a hope that you can get people into a position of political influence or policies that are political um, that create the dynamic that can help accelerate or usher in this race war. That's that's kind of frightening. <laughs> I mean, it just it seems like 
that's that's kind of scary like that that sort of apocalyptic violence like it's of course and and that's why these folks always scare me the most when we have a dynamic in the country where racial tensions are high and you know again i don't need to necessarily ci i mean the people who are groups that are outgrowths because they have to be licking their lips and you know one of the things that I I look at like when I see, you know, a situation where, for instance, a particular clan group is going to goes to South Carolina right after Dylan Roof, who, by the way, had, you know, influences from, it appears, the the sort of racist neo-pagan folks that was accelerationist in nature. when these folks show up right after something that raw happens, right after they take down the Confederate flag and their goal is to put the flag back up, one of the first things I do is I go to that group's website and I start digging to see if I can find evidence of Christian identity influence. Because my mind, and by the way, I did, my mind says these people are not like, there's no real substantive political goal that they have. They have to know that they are creating an incredibly provocative moment by showing up within days of something like that happening, that kind of massacre. And, you know, they didn't succeed. And a lot of times they don't succeed, but they worry me every time because if they manage to get something off, they can spark something. I mean, we'll get into King, but my, my argument there was is they, that's as close as they've ever come. And they came pretty damn close. Thankfully, the King family, you know, made a lot of symbolic and public statements that lower the 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 fire but man were we in a tough spot from april 4th to april 11th of 1968 and i think that was entirely something they were hoped would happen so i want to kind of switch footing from history now into specific acts of terrorism and i think Sort of the first thing that kind of kind of drew my mind or drew my eye in the book was kind of how much CI influenced these really kind of I hate using the word notable assassinations, particularly Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King. And I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through those cases and sort of CI's influence on kind of the violence that was directed, you know towards civil rights activists so now i'll I'll draw sort of a a space around evers because there's a level of uncertainty with that one in terms of the intentions behind it now evers was famously assassinated by byron de la beckwith 
Beckwith was undoubtedly linked up with the White Knights, or, or I should say a proto-version of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. Um, White Knights sort of hints of them forming in 63. They become an official group in 64. Uh, Evers is, is assassinated in the summer of 1963. Beckwith, we at least know later on in life, is very sympathetic. Well, first of all, again, the White Knights, the upper echelon of, of that group is undoubtedly um, influenced by Christian identity. Um, we know Beckwith later on in life becomes a, um, a member of the... Um, um, man, my, my brain just had a, uh, a freeze, the Phineas priesthood. But even before then, he's very closely associated with people like Joseph Miltier out of Georgia. We don't know how far back that goes, but Miltier was wholeheartedly, and he was actually practically the Southeast distributor of Swift sermons. So, um, there are questions about how much uh, you can have about how much CI maybe influenced Beckwith. And there are suggestions that Beckwith had help in assassinating Medgar Evers right after John Kennedy delivers his famous landmark speech on civil rights, you know, basically putting the Kennedy administration squarely behind something like the Civil Rights Act, very provocative, causes the first major riots in the history of Birmingham. Now, that, I would argue, is where some of the focus should definitely be on. Because when you see that again, when you see the provocative violence leading to riots where riots had not been in, in the past, now you're seeing sort of the proof of concept for what you want to do. Now that figures in, if you want to go there, to something I believe is unquestionably much more directly influenced by Christian identity, and that is the assassination of Martin Luther King. Because if killing Medgar Evers causes a major riot, then and even attempting to kill Martin Luther King uh, two months before causes a major riot where it wasn't before. Again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. What would actually killing him do? And then you flash forward and all that's happening over the next five years and we could talk about it is it from the vantage point, And again, obviously, I don't agree with the idea behind it, but from the vantage point of Wesley Swift and his most zealous followers, all that happens from the time Megar ever gets killed up until the time that Martin Luther King gets killed is more and more evidence that your holy race war is imminent. The country becomes more racially tense, more widespread violence, more widespread civil unrest. It's That's what you're staring at. So then 
the assassination in, in the view of CI, the assassination of MLK would basically kick off their their conception of the race war, so to speak. Absolutely. So he killing him first off, and we have this documented, you know, it's in primary documents about that Christian defense league. They saw the potential of killing King as far back as 1960. And I say they, I mean people like Gale and, and, and Swift, right? But it only becomes more of a inviting topic <laughs> um, as one, you know, he's the holy grail of, of, of violence because you got to remember 64, 65, 66, 67. We go from a few dozen urban rebellions or riots, whatever you want to call them, to every year it like goes up. I mean, I'm going to give a somewhat arbitrary figure, but it's not that far off by like 50%. So you have, you know, you know, handful of major riots in 64. You've got a bunch of other major urban rebellions or riots in 65, including a huge one in Watts. By the way, King goes there. King gets on the phone with Martin Luther King. This is King. And gets on the phone with Lyndon Johnson in 65. And he says, the stuff I'm looking at, we may be looking at a race war if this continues, right? So even King realizes it, right? 66, it gets even more in terms of total numbers, damage, et cetera, arrests. 67, you have two of the biggest ever in American history. Uh, Watts was huge in 65, but right close to it is Newark and Detroit. And then in dozens and dozens, over a hundred of other cities, right? While that's happening, Martin Luther King remains an esteemed figure in the black community, but he's increasingly becoming part of a less influential call for nonviolence, he remains committed to philosophical nonviolence, but even a group like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, changed their name because they start, again, you got this influence of Malcolm X, who got assassinated in 65. They start saying, by any means necessary, they start saying, we can retaliate violence with violence. So King is the last remaining major voice for a declining philosophy in terms of influence of nonviolence. So as inviting as he was in 1963, he's a more inviting target in 68. Because if you eliminate him, not only will you completely inflame the black community, because he's still an esteemed figure. You will take off the chessboard in your mind if you're a white, if you're if you're one of these accelerationist CI guys, you will take off the chessboard, the one buffer between the militant right and the militant left. And with a lot of potential to draw in everyday whites and everyday left people. And of course, in their mind, that's what's gonna happen, that's ordained. So by 67, 68, you have reports of some groups that are heavily CI influenced. Again, if you, you pull out some guy off the street in the Minuteman, he'd just say, 
I hate communism and I hate the American government because it's secretly under the influence of communism from the United Nations. But who's running the groups? They're all the, the people at the top of the Minutemen are like all CI. Like one of them's the chauffeur for Swift, right? Um, so your those groups start actually trying to like go into streets. They manufacture or they or they print out fake flyers and pamphlets to try and enrage the black community and blame events on white, you know, police officers. So they're very deliberate about it. And that's documented. With King, he becomes this hugely inviting target. The what one person who was a white supremacist called the ultimate prize. And we believe that they had actually been trying to kill him. And and I again think of it in terms of Salafi jihadism and think of it in terms of a group like ISIS or Al Qaeda. You don't need up until 67 and 68, when I do think they became more cohesive and organized. You don't need Wesley Swift to get together in a room with Sam Bowers and J.B. Stoner and, you know, uh, you know, Admiral Cromlin and say, let's kill Martin Luther King. Um, they, they know that they have the direction of the kind of violence that would produce the kind of incendiary response and King is a very obvious choice, but I do believe it became more cohesive by 67, 68. They started to work together to try and kill him. So then were they successful? Because I mean, let me add more context to it. Uh, When it, when it came to the, actual assassination um in terms of you know would you consider them successful or is this more like ideological influence that eventually if you keep pushing the idea of a race war that martin luther king needs to be murdered then eventually somebody would come to that oh i think i think it was much more concrete and deliberate than that although i do think if you, I don't want to go too far into the details of the book, and you'd probably find even more in my later book, Killing King, but there's certainly three pretty detailed chapters in, in American Secret Jihad. I ultimately think things did not go exactly according to plan. Part of the issue was I, I think they were very deliberate, but they were also under intense federal scrutiny by the time that this rolled around, and they re they they sort of reinstituted a plan that they had back in the mid sixties to basically outsource through a bounty, the plot on King to criminal elements so that they avoid federal scrutiny, have an element of plausible deniability. And that's what ultimately through, again, to, that's what ultimately led to King getting shot and killed in Memphis, although it did not proceed in the exact way they had planned, at least the people at the top. But they are ultimately responsible and set things in motion 
that put the relevant players in place so that King would be killed in Memphis in 1968. <coughs> Interesting. So with that, I, I kind of want to flash forward to the seventies. So after the assassination of King, you enter this period of the seventies that the radical right kind of begins <coughs> to begins to fracture. So what was CI doing? you know, as an ideology during the seventies, you know, so it seemed, they, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so they still had an element of cohesiveness. Like there were like, even how crazy is this house? There were even like award ceremonies. Um, but it was, it was not nearly as centralized. They were fragmented death of Swift and Quintal pro fragmented them out. But again, it's an idea that survives. So what you have is a lot of people like Richard Butler, who starts Aryan Nations and moves the Church of Jesus Christ Christian to Idaho. William Potter Gale, who was one of Swift's, you know, closest allies, although, again, there were contentious periods. He starts Posse Comitatus. Um, You know, again, like uh, different individuals who were heavily influenced by CI form their own smaller groups to, you know, and with some element of CI, a part of it, there's still, again, if, if I was, you know, someone in Idaho, a farmer who joined Posse Comitatus, my first introduction you know, may not be, hey, we think Jews secretly run the world kind of situation, right? It's going to be, you know, the, the economic environment for farmers sucks. The central government is responsible for it. Um, and then you're going to lead them in the direction of, well, who's running the central government? So it's still there. They're just not they don't have a unifying element to them. Certainly nobody is compelling and captivating a Swift. They're still somewhat reeling. Some of the people are in prison from what the FBI and local law enforcement did in the late 1960s. And what changes it is sort of the rallying situation is what happens in Greensboro, North Carolina in the late 1970s. It's not, some, you know, Christian identity psycho. There really was a Christian identity psycho who went around in the late 1970s hoping he'd start a, a race war. Um, but everybody thinks because a later book by William Pierce is dedicated to him that somehow he's like the origin story of Christian identity. It's because they don't know the stuff I'm talking about here. Greensboro really becomes a sort of rallying point and you get this moment that you have oftentimes in the cycle of the history of white supremacy where a lot of disparate groups start talking to each other about trying to create a movement again the difference is and i and i hinted at this earlier is that you still have I don't know if you want to call it institutional memory, movement memory within these groups. 
um, about what happens to larger sized organizations if they, as they try and move towards violent goals. And that is, and that where you get the Lewis Beams of the world, that is, is that they know that those groups are much more easy to influence and to infiltrate and fragment and surveil. So that's where you get a lot of the 80s. So you have something of an effort to, to unify, but it gets taken in a direction where, so maybe the ideas are unifying again and they're much more sharp, right? So in the 80s, you can be much more overt about Christian identity because you're not going to, you don't have the numbers. You don't have, you're not going to have, you don't need to have maybe the numbers that you had in 1963 that you could potentially exploit for mass violence by hiding your ideology. Instead, what you have is a bunch of ultra-dedicated people under the umbrella of an ideology. If that answers your question about the 70s. It does. So then, you know, as we leave the 70s, we enter the 80s. And I think you, you have a good portion in the book about the murder of Allen Berg. Um, his, his, mur- his case comes up a lot uh, as, a, as an example. And I, I was wondering if you can uh, walk us through how CI kind of influenced his murder in 1984. So, first of all, broadly speaking, uh, well, first of all, Berg is a radio host. He's something of what you would call a shock jock. Um, he's very antagonistic. He has a fairly devout, somewhat large following in the Denver Midwest area. Uh, he's Jewish. And he's not uh, afraid to invite on or and directly antagonize, even if he doesn't have them on, Nazi types and, and white supremacists. And this does not go over well, as you might imagine, with white supremacist groups. Now, again, you have a more sort of goal-directed, goal-oriented, but cell-based type manifestation of white supremacy by the early 80s they're starting to be heavily influenced not just by lewis beam but by something that many maybe your viewers are are or listeners are aware of the turner diaries william pierce the author of the turner diaries he's not christian identity per se i think even i needed to do more exploration of how Christian identity might have influenced him, but whether or not it did, that book, the Turner, the, the Turner Diaries, is has been described as, as as by many people as either a Bible or a user manual for Christian identity. It basically sort of gives them strong hints as to what maybe they could do the the to try and create the race war nationally and worldwide. And so you have these, you have the beam influence, you have Christian identity influence, you have the user's manual from the Turner Diaries. 
and you get groups that almost form communities, sometimes communes, you know, and one of those groups is a group called the Order. Again, they're a cell-based group and a large number of their members are Christian identity influence associated with the Church of Jesus Christ. Christian Aryan nations, all of which, again, as Bruce Hoffman said, are under the umbrella of Christian identity ideology. And they don't have just small goals. Their goals are to try and basically take that work of fiction, the Turner Diaries, and try and make it almost real. And they they have a number of sort of avenues that they want that they explore doing that. Uh, robberies, bank robberies, uh, forgery, uh, counterfeiting would be a better word than forgery. But another idea is, is and this isn't new in, in history, you could go back to the Minutemen in the 60s who I am sure had influence on people like Robert Matthews who ran the order. Um, these are groups that are so, – so they, they start thinking they're going to create a hit list of prominent people, Jews and people of color, to assassinate. And this is all this stuff is going to happen, you know, semi-concurrently with each other, and it's going to create this environment where at the very least they can get an all-white territory somewhere. But, of course, if you read books like the Terror Diaries, that's – that's a prelude to, you know, doing things like launching strikes on Israel and stuff, right? It's, it's, it's not, you know, pure white nationalism. It's, it's Christian identity influenced. So Berg becomes one of the chief targets because he's openly antagonizing well-known Christian identity, white supremacist types whether they're on his show or off it, he's basically ridiculing them and making fun of them. So they basically plot out to kill him and they do, they successfully kill him. uh, And then they go on the run. Uh, They don't manifest a lot of the other killings or, you know, they don't get the kind of massive counterfeit operation that they wanted. They ultimately, the order is in fact caught by a combination of informant and poorly done counterfeiting. The leader of the order, Robert Matthews, goes on the run, as do other members. Some of them show up at one of these other sort of kind of cell-based but almost community-based Christian identity groups that's plotting terrorist acts in uh, the Ozarks, the uh, the covenant sworded arm of the Lord. Matthews himself escapes to Washington to Whidbey Island, uh, gets into a firefight, so to speak, refuses to surrender in a, in confrontation with law enforcement, and winds up getting killed. And he becomes a major martyr for white supremacist groups that follow and members of his group, the order, probably most famously David Lane, who, you know, is famous for coining the 14 words about, you know, securing the world for white children. 
Lane becomes all these guys eventually, by the way, get arrested or a number of them do from prison. Lane becomes an ongoing influence. And not just during his time, but going forward on white supremacist movements. Lane is one of the people who was Christian identity. So are, again, many of the other people, Matthews, who moves the, who starts experimenting more with this sort of racist Odinism under the idea that, you know, Christianity, you know, historically tends to be a little bit more pacifistic. I don't know how you could look at Christian identity people and think that, but they wanted something even more muscular. So an outgrowth of Allen Berg's assassination is these members of the order become hugely influential and inspirational to terrorist attacks that follow in the future. Something that I I kind of find interesting is the idea of the Turner Diaries as religious text. And I think you're not the first person to mention it or sort of propose the idea. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, when it comes to religious text of Christian identity, I mean, do we include the Turner diaries or is it simply a work of fiction that, you know, later terrorists would kind of just try to repeat? I mean, how do we, that's in- a, Oh, go ahead. that's a fascinating question. Sorry to interrupt. Um, well, so William Pierce, the author, is, it's another one of these guys. He, he's like, I don't like Christian identity, but he comes up with his own religious ideology, cosmotheism, which is surely, again, there are, obviously, you want to dig in, there are differences. But in the broad strokes, it's awfully similar. And the book certainly manifests what, if, if I would pull William Gale, from the 1960s and say, what do you think of the Turner Diaries? And he was alive when they were written. I'm sure it'd be interesting to find what his thoughts are. I mean, he would have like, this is what I was trying to do. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much there. There is like a weirdish kind of religious type of thing that happens at the end. Uh, but is it a holy text? I haven't seen it referred to that by any seminarians or you know, people, I, 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 I'll admit, I don't listen to every, and, you know, especially, you know, life goes on in other directions. I don't listen to every Christian identity preacher. Um, but I would probably, again, without, you know, fully committing, saying it's, it's less religious and more like that manual that I described. Interesting. So then, you know, kind of flash forward to 1995 with Timothy McVeigh and the bombing of the Oklahoma City building or the, the federal building in Oklahoma City. Um, I guess the, the first question with Timothy McVeigh is what was his relationship with CI? Because I think he, he comes off as kind of a very, I want to say secular. I don't, I don't know what else word you would describe him as kind of secular guy you know, just wandering and failing through life. And then um, I think it was, it's you who, who kind of suggests there's a relationship with CI. And then also when we spoke to Mark Jurgensmeyer, the author of Terror in the Mind of God, that 
there, there's this kind of re- religious implication or kind of, you know, religion adjacent motivation for him. But if I, you could, I would definitely, oh, okay, go, go, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I was just going to say that, um, could, could you explore his relationship with CI for us? Okay. Now I would say that even before me, there were certain people who saw at least some elements of the connection. Um, I, I, I would say, I would go as far as to say they made several of the same connections. I did. I like your word of religious adjacent. I don't think he was heavily religiously motivated himself, but here's where we get some backdoor stuff, right? So we were just talking about the Turner Diaries. And I think you remember, you, you mentioned Mr. Berger uh, earlier as a major contributor to your, your Loopcast. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Am I correct on that? Yeah, yeah. He's uh, yeah. He's he's, he's one of the first people to make a real cogent point that I, I think everyone who's ever actually stomached reading the Turner Diaries would say. McVeigh presented the Turner Diaries as being an anti-gun book. That's like two pages. There's no way you hold and distribute and love the Turner Diaries to the degree that Tim McVeigh did, and I called it and I borrowed it and said it was his Tim McVeigh's Bible, right? Without at least some kind of sympathy for major racial anti-Semitic sentiments. It is not an NRA book. It is a let's kill Jews and blacks book, right? Um, so that's the first clue that, and I think Berger pointed it out himself. It's the first clue that maybe there's something else going on with Tim McVeigh. The other one, very similar in notion, is he joins an Arkansas Ku Klux Klan group that is run by, at that time, one of the leading, and still to this day, leading voices in Christian identity, right? Again, he presents the the Klan as being a gun rights group and claims that's why he sort of distanced himself later. I have a hard time believing any human being with even a rudimentary understanding of American history, you know, the first thing that pops in their head is that the Klan is a gun rights group. Right. So now you got two into case that he's maybe trying to present himself in a way that's a little bit less, uh, that's a little bit more favorable to the people who are interviewing him. But then you dig a little bit further. And again, more than one person has done this before I did. He, his connection to this place called Elohim City. Elohim City is another one of these Christian identity compounds. It is basically like a small, I don't want to say gated community, but it's like this subsist, you know, this enclosed community that operates by way of Christian identity ideas. What we know is some very violent people go went in and out of Elohim City. People like Richard Snell, who had plans 
to bob a federal building, I believe in Oklahoma, before McVeigh ever did, who was in prison for his role in killing somebody, and he was Christian identity, right? These ideas were circulating in Elohim City. Informants knew about them. And what and randomly, and it wouldn't be random, I don't think it's random. It appears as if at the very least, Timothy McVeigh was trying to phone Elohim City and talk to somebody there. And there's some decent reasons to believe he may very well have visited Elohim City under an alias. There's evidence. I I believe McVeigh was the driving force, of course, Terry Nichols, at a minor role by Michael Fortier in the Oklahoma City bombing. But it's also the case that it's very difficult to imagine that Timothy McVeigh planned this all himself. Although, again, the Turner Diaries has a scene where a federal building is destroyed. Very similar way, right? But he didn't have the know-how when it came to the explosives. When he was working with Michael Fortier, they, like, they could barely create a pipe bomb. And he goes to a, I don't want to say sophisticated, but a, certainly a much more sophisticated, you know, ammonium nitrate bombs for what he takes down with Terry Nichols' Elohim City. And there's evidence that people were associating with him along the way. And so the question becomes, were Christian identities, he certainly was influenced by a book like Turner Diaries. He certainly reached out to and was associated with groups that were Christian identity influenced. He certainly called at least and very possibly visited Elohim City. Did he find some help and know-how? And was he influenced, even indirectly, even by the ideas, to do what he did in in Oklahoma City? And I tend to think yes. I don't think it's a rock-solid case, but I tend to think yes. That's interesting to me because, I mean, it almost seems like the prosecution of McVeigh was kind of a success and a failure. It's a Success because McVeigh and Nichols both go to jail, but it's a failure because it almost seems like this examination of this broader network was kind of, I don't want to say ignored, but it, it, it definitely was not an investigative priority. So, so there, there's, okay. there's a couple of things that may well go into that. First, there's a general reluctance of prosecutors to extend a crime too far outside of what they can absolutely prove because it opens up the possibility for defendants to start scapegoating and blaming unknown others. Now McVeigh tried to, but he was like going for like, you know, IRA terrorists or something. Like he was going for other things. I think that's interesting too, right? That he was pushing his defense away from that kind of idea. But his lawyers did find this evidence of him in Elohim City. And what they also found, and I think it's pretty well established, as much it was minimized or like ridiculed at the time, 
that there was a pretty reliable informant inside Elohim City who was not only saying to them, them being the government, that somebody, they call, called him Tim Tuttle, was coming to Elohim City and that there were other people, but saying that there was active discussion about something like Oklahoma City happening. And this is one of the problems that presents itself. I, I, I hope people don't say that I, I think infiltration is like this all good thing because there's a lot of potential dangers with it. One of them is that you infiltrate a group and you start hearing about plants and you start getting visions of a complete roll-up of a whole entire organization of people. Maybe you could get William Pierce, right? Maybe you could get, you know, some of the people who you, you couldn't get for the Fort Smith trial, right? Maybe now you could get them. But you got to wait for them to be in the act or close to it. And if you don't time that right, then the act happens. And I'm not pulling this out of thin air. I include an exchange at the end of that chapter with uh, a reporter and one of the people who was at Elohim City, who sure seems like he could have been an informant, uh, basically saying, we may have mistimed this thing. And now it becomes absolutely vital, unfortunately, a lot of the time to minimize what you knew in advance because you did not stop it. I think both things were in play potentially in the prosecution of McVeigh. Um, oh, it's still a little bit speculative, but that would be my sense. So I want to do one last skip forward to the 2000s. Um, particularly, I want to kind of focus on CI post 2016 and with this kind of resurgence of white supremacy of the white supremacist movement. But uh, where do you see Christian identity now in, in, in our kind of, you know, post 2016 sort of world where, you know, where do you see them influencing? Where do you see them, you know, so getting a I foothold? Have, I have to first give a lot of shout outs to the people who are doing the work on the ground and who I pester all the time with questions about this. Again, I mentioned them before, Matt, Sarah, Alex Newhouse, his whole group. Um, they're really guiding me as much as anything now. But what they're indicating to me is consistent with the pattern that I saw. And we talked, I think, about it earlier, um, even in a modern context, the pattern that I saw in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, which is CI people realize that the time right now is unfortunately very um, promising for racial violence. You've had protests in multiple cities. They weren't nearly as violent as the protests you had in the late 60s, but in many ways they were longer term. 
you have a sort of an element of white grievance that is without question a part of the MAGA Trump dynamic. You have groups, like you look at Unite the Right, that are increasingly more willing to co-affiliate and work together towards the same kind of goals. And you have a country that even if it's not fully racially based, politically feels like a low-key tinderbox. I mean, what happens in 2022 and especially 2024 if Trump runs whether he wins or loses? I mean, it's a real question mark. And what you see now to your question with Christian identity, what the people who I rely on are seeing and what you even use the word glom onto, they're, you know, warming themselves to these adjacent groups, right? So, you know, the Oath Keepers certainly have things that are aligned with CI, Q has certainly elements that can be aligned with CI. All the groups that are talking about civil war, I mean, that's CI's wet dream. And what they're doing is they're either implicitly trying to move these folks like Sam Bowers did with the White Knights in a direction that would be more provocative and accelerationist, or they're biding their time and seeing if they can actually turn and recruit people in a more forthrightly CI direction. And it's alarming to me because again, I, 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 I saw what, you know, when you, after Martin Luther King gets killed, we have over a hundred urban riots. We have the largest deployment of American troops in American territory since reconstruction and the civil war. And it looks like things for, you know, days, you know, my, my father, you know, may rest in peace would, would tell you that there were days you didn't know where the country was going to go. And then the King family and, you know, help our better angels get simmer things down, but we still had later on in, you know, Chicago. I don't think we're 68 yet, but I think we could be 68. And that becomes a very inviting target for people who want to manipulate groups to do provocative violence in the name of accelerationism. That's interesting. That analogy to 68 and the 70s, it, it kind of fascinates me. But at the same time, I feel like my, my only critique of that uh, is that like white supremacy didn't have it, it feels like I should say it, I'm not a I'm an amateur in this space in the 60s and 70s it, it didn't feel like white supremacy had a political way forward like you you wouldn't expect a white supremacist to run for a federal seat and now you know we're, we're I doing agree it. with you I I, uh, I I think that's a fair criticism but I mean, I, so like we're doing a show later in the season about uh, QAnon candidates and there's 50 of them all running for federal seats. And it's just like, 
holy shit because you you go from you put the pin there and you kind of you know look at what's influencing q and it's like oh there's that ci element you know you know slowly glomming on and and kind of changing or i shouldn't say changing the nature of q but making it more apocalyptic and more extreme so i mean is is there something new or something you know more drastic i guess i, I don't know what the word is for our current modernity well, or current period i mean if you follow seth kotler the historian he'll he'll show you some examples of some looty type of folks who would run for office at different times um I don't think even now you could be overtly white supremacist and run. I do find it deeply disturbing that you could be adjacent in a group like Q and as crazy as Q is and have a decent chance in some places of of winning office. So I agree with you. I don't think that would have been necessarily, but, in fairness, you did have the Southern strategy in full effect in 68 and 69 and in the years going forward where you would just use coded language. So, I mean, Jesse Helms, you know, Senator from North Carolina, he wasn't dropping Ed bombs, but everybody kind of sort of knew where he was coming from when it came to the issues of race. So I think it's just a different form. I do find the appeal of extremists, not just on race, but on, again, on, you know, you know, election fraud, even. I do find that really potentially disturbing. And I would say that, and I would actually push that even more than Q. Again, I said, I think there's a very real chance that people who know that pushing the a particular narrative would uh, would, you know, uh, lead to major civil violence, they're going to be widespread, you know people who believe that this election was in 2020 was was rigged that's going to be widespread political office holders and if you could somehow whether through q extremists or whoever manipulate that in a particular direction i don't even know you have to manipulate it that could easily result in the kind of widespread violence that people try and exploit to to make even worse if that answers your question it does um okay so i think i think we we've gone through a lot today um yeah. and as as per tradition uh our last question is always very open-ended uh which is uh leave us you know the audience with something to think about something to iterate in our heads or you know something that you would say you would think that the audience would find worthwhile to kind of mull over, so to speak. Well, here's one of the things that I, again, I put at the beginning and the end of my book. And I think 
needs to be explored in more depth. And I think if you accept the things I say in my book, it opens up this door and I hope scholars out there really look at it because I think it could inform us in a way that makes us safer, which is I see a whole lot of parallels. Again, you don't want to make it oversell it between the Salafi jihadist ideological terrorism overseas when taken in its full form in its full history and the Salafi and, and the Christian identity ideology, especially when you go back 70 years, the way I, I strongly suggest you do, that there are insights we can get both ways from that. And I don't think I've even fully explored that. And I hope that people really, if you, if you follow and accept the premises of my book, you could, I think the opening is there for a lot of really enlightening and productive and helpful insights if somebody's willing to take that on. And that's what I leave you with. And thank you so much for having me on. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, thank you so much. That was Stuart Wexler, author of America's Secret Jihad, The Hidden History of Religious Terrorism in the United States. Uh, we'll have a link for it. Uh, go purchase it. It's probably one of the most kind of in-depth books on Christian identity out right now. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me.